But if you're visiting, just want to say a, a special welcome. Really glad that you're here. Um, we're just thrilled that you're here to join us. We understand that uh, for some of you, uh, we don't know there's a number of ways you may have landed here and ended up here, but either way, uh, it took some courage and boldness to uh, maybe gather with people that you're not familiar with and gather in a place that is very unfamiliar to you. Uh, and just so in case you're wondering what we're doing here, this is very simply a worship service where we love to worship predominantly the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we believe that Jesus Christ was God who came and lived the life we could not live in perfect obedience to the Father on our behalf so that he could die on a cross for our sin in our place to rescue us and even reconcile us back to God the Father. And so uh, we believe that not only does that happen, but then he gifts you his Holy Spirit to enable you to walk in the fullness of joy in life that really your heart is longing to walk in and enjoy. And so uh, we get kind of rewired and reframed by picking up the scriptures, which we believe are God's word to us as his people, where we can learn about him and predominantly see more of Jesus, more of his glory, more of his work. And as we see these things, we pray that it would transform us. So um, you're going to consistently hear that we're not a bunch of people that just want to grow in knowledge. We want to grow in transformation. So it's not enough for you to come in and just hear a bunch of facts and a bunch of theology. It means it's got to eventually land on your heart, open your blind eyes, open your deaf ears, and remove the veil that's on your heart to see his glory and see his life and his work in the cross so that then you can believe in that and then walk in that. And so uh, we've been looking in the gospel according to Luke. It's one of four gospels in the scriptures. We are landing the plane. We're going to finish Luke on Easter. And what's been awesome is we've been really kind of just walking through the last week of of Jesus' life known as Holy Week or his Passion Week. It started when he entered Jerusalem on the colt, and basically he's inaugurating that this thing is now going to wrap up, that my crucifixion is imminent, that on Friday I will die on a cross for the sins of all those who will trust in my name, and then I will rise again, validating that I paid the debt in full, that I am God, that I could do what only I could do, being God, um, and then it's beautiful that he lives, walks, appears to a couple hundred, and then ascends and says, hey, this is going to start my church which is now us, the people of God, who have trusted in the great work that Jesus did. So um, Luke is just accounting for us the life and teachings of Jesus, hoping you'd be transformed by those life and teachings. And so we're in Luke chapter 22. Uh, it's been awesome just seeing the end of Jesus's earthly life and all that he is doing, all that he will accomplish. And uh, before we just kind of uh, roll into this, I want to make sure that we give us just a few minutes because he here's the reality. I realize that all of us walk into this room every Sunday morning with just chaos in our minds, right? So um, if you're in here and you're, you're, your heart's just like tranquil and peaceful and your whole week's been awesome, man, let's get together for coffee so I can find out how that can happen. Uh, but all of us have jobs, all of us have experiences, all of us have uh, friendships, neighborhoods. We've got pressures, anxieties, hopes, fears, disappointments. We all come into this room feeling a lot, feeling a lot of different things. So we desperately need the Holy Spirit of God to give our souls rest and attention and eagerness to be transformed by what we hear. Amen? Because none of us have the capability to do that left to ourselves, right? So let's just, I want to give you guys just a moment uh, of just quiet for you to appeal to him, to rest your heart, to ask him whatever is burdening your shoulders to give them to him so you can actually sit and hear what he wants to say and lay before us this morning. So take a moment to do that.
Father, what a gift stillness is. God, with the day and age that we live in, it seems almost impossible to have quiet and stillness of mind, stillness of heart. So, Father, give us opportunity this morning to hear from you. Father, might you keep back all the things that might want to distract or deter us from the beautiful, good, gracious news of the sovereign work of God and the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, for us, so that we can walk this week greater into the image of Jesus than we did last week. Father, teach us through your word. I pray for those in this room that have blind eyes and deaf ears that you would illuminate understanding and give them greater understanding to what is being said. And Father, those of us that that know you, love you, pursue you, might you help us in our continued walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 22 is where we are, and here is where we're picking up. We are hours away from Jesus' crucifixion, and you're basically going to see two different men, and you saw these two different men actually um, earlier on uh, last week, I think, when we um, discussed this. So um, here's what's going to happen. You're going to see Judas, and you're going to see Peter, and both of these men basically and ultimately uh, betrayed Jesus, but they were both men who walked with Jesus, listened to Jesus, heard his sermons, saw him heal, um, and both of them will have an opportunity to turn to Jesus, and both of them committing the same similar sin, one will lead to ruin, the other will lead to repentance. And so uh, it's gonna be a sobering sermon, uh, an honest look at our souls, and hopefully we're gonna see, hey, Jesus' greatest desire is that in our sin, in our failure, we wanna turn to him, not from him. We will find further despair and further destruction, but rather life in his name. And so let's pick up at verse 47, and here we're gonna see Luke write this. Uh, While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and this is while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, We dropped off there last week. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with our sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour and the power of Darkness. Okay, so just to catch us up to speed, um, Jesus has just wrapped up some private time with his disciples. He uh, instituted the Lord's Supper just the day before, and it was all to foreshadow his broken body and shed blood that he would give as the lamb to be slain for the atonement of sin. And as he's sharing all of this, he's having this private time with his disciples, and during that time, he excuses Judas. We saw that. He says, hey, go do what your heart set out to do. You're the one who's gonna betray me. You're the one who's gonna do this thing. And so Judas is. Judas leaves. He's removed. And during this time, you can read in John, he gives promises, he gives warnings, he gives prophecies. Jesus gives uh, a lot of intimate time to his disciples before he would ultimately be crucified. And he also, after he exposes Judas, they leave, they head to the Mount of Olives. We saw that last week where Jesus would consistently go to pray. It would be his retreat center. And as he's praying in the garden, we saw him sweat drops of blood and the agony he was in, namely because of the cup he would drink that we would not have to drink in the wrath of God towards us in our sin. And so um, we see all that happening. So as Jesus is sharing about these things, it ends with, hey, uh, he goes to the disciples who are sleeping going, you shouldn't be sleeping. You should be praying. You should be praying against the temptations that will come because it's going to get hard. It's going to get aggressive. People are going to take me and crucify me and you're going to have to fend for your very lives. 
And so as all of that is wrapping up, all the while Judas is going to the religious establishment to formulate a plan. We know this from other gospel accounts that he goes and he has to basically find a way to form an accusation. He wants to get money. He's greedy, even though he's the treasure of the operation, which you can read in the gospels. This man has a wicked heart that desires to betray Jesus. It's premeditated. It's thought out. You can see it consistently throughout the New Testament scriptures that um, this was just in the heart of Judas. He's methodical. He wants to it to be nighttime. He wants it to be away from crowds. He wants it to be when Jesus is alone. And he knew that Jesus would be in the garden because he was with Jesus. He knew that's where he would pray and he was with him in the Lord's Supper before it was instituted, before Jesus removed him saying, hey, go do this very thing. So um, he's familiar with where Jesus will go. He's familiar with where he can tell these religious people to find Jesus. Um, and remember, even if people didn't actually physically see Jesus, they had heard of him. I mean, it, his news had spread like wildfire. We learned that through this whole gospel, that his healings, his miracles, his entrance into the city um, had just filled the place, and the religious establishment was terrified that people might riot if they did anything against this Jesus as they're hailing him king and not Caesar as king. And so all this is culminating, all this is building up, and we read in Matthew's account and others that Judas goes directly to the Jewish leaders, and the thing is, the Jewish leaders didn't have an army, so they have to go to the Romans and help the Romans have an opinion as to why they need Jesus, because they need soldiers in this whole deal, and so that's not really hard. I mean, all they have to do is say to Roman soldiers, hey, um, this Jesus, you see the way he came in on Monday, how people hailed him as king, the mobs that love him, they don't love Caesar, they love this guy, and you know, it's gonna ruin your stability, they could ruin your government, all of these different things. So the Romans had every last reason to think, yeah, we want his head too. And so they work with the Roman soldiers. They come and will learn that the crowd with Judas as he enters the garden is a couple hundred. They, they say there's Sanhedrin there, there's chief priests, there's scribes, there's a couple hundred Roman soldiers. Hilarious for a guy who never acted unjustly. Right? I mean, I always say that. I mean, it's amazing. The, the government that's supposed to act justly and enact rightness upon all those who reside in their land, I mean, they're coming in to come after a guy who never acted unjustly. Furthermore, it's, it's unfathomable. I mean, this guy showed compassion and mercy. He healed. He raised the dead back to life. Hey, what's, why are we going to kill this guy? I don't know, because he raises people who were killed back to life. I mean, it's just insane that they would hate him so much. This was all the work of darkness. This was all a part of the sin in their hearts that we've been seeing throughout this entire gospel. So this is quite a job. I think we need to give Judas the credit where credit is due. This is not some little like, hey, I'm gonna go grab some guys. We're gonna go in the garden and take God made in human flesh and arrest him. This was deeply thought out and planned and prepared. Now just a, a, a little snippet about Judas, just so we're all on the same playing field. I know people um, have different understandings of Judas. Um, I believe there's nothing in the New Testament you can read that would even give you the assumption that he's a Christian, that he loved Jesus, that he was for Jesus. I mean, Jesus straight out in John 6 calls him Satan. That's never good, right? I mean, he, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because Peter was tempting me. He never called Peter Satan. So, so if Jesus calls you the, the devil, you're probably not converted yet. I mean, you probably don't love Jesus, love the things of God. In John 17, further, he, he says in his high priestly prayer, hey, there is one that will be lost to the doom of his destruction. If you're lost, you're not found. That, that person being Judas Iscariot. Um, we see many other places where um, they, this, is, this is understood. And so here in the text, as Judas comes in, he, does, he is very selfish. He is very prideful. He's about his own glory and his own wants, not the wants of Jesus, even though he sat under Jesus, listened to Jesus. 
And so here in the text, it's a crowd entering the garden. It's a massive crowd. You've got uh, some with swords and clubs. That's just the Romans come in with the swords. The temple police come in with clubs because the temple police could never kill anybody. They could just beat people, right, over the head. So uh, only government had the authority to take life. So the Romans have the swords. The temple police have clubs. And they're coming in. This whole thing is, is, is growing and growing. And Judas comes up to, put, to betray Jesus with a kiss. Now, um, in that culture, that was a, a common greeting. But, but further than that, um, Judas needed to betray Jesus in such a way to let all of the hundreds behind him know which one Jesus was. I mean, he's in a garden. It's likely dark. It's likely hard to see. He wants to make sure they know who this is. If he just points at him, not easy to know which one is Jesus. So he has to go up and do something intentional that would reveal which one is the Jesus of Nazareth. Because not all these people had seen Jesus. Not all these people knew who Jesus was, and he wants to get it right. And Matthew, I believe it's Matthew, says that Judas tells them, hey, whichever one I kiss, that's the one you're going to grab and arrest. Now, this is deeply traitorous. Like, like this, is, this is depths of betrayal. Um, this is a way an enemy would work, not a friend. That you would use something that was one of the deepest forms of friendship to betray and so here he comes to use this. It's, it's like, you know families who greet with a kiss? Uh, how it's a deep greeting for friendship? If you're Italian or Greek, you probably know that, right? I mean, this, I married a Greek Italian. So you bet, there's tons of kissing uh, when I met her. And, and I'll be honest, when I first uh, met the family, I didn't know what to do. I, they're coming at me, and I'm like, you're not Kristen. Like, I don't know why there's this engagement going on. So you try to go right, try to go left. I mean, so now, now I'm great at it. I've learned. We've married almost 10 years. So I, I've, I've, one time, we remember where actually we, we met lip to lip with, I think it was your aunt. And, and uh, that was awkward, right? But she didn't care because everybody just kissed in the family, so bizarre, but, but that's friendship. I learned, Kristen would always tell me, um, man, this is, there's deep meaning here, there's deep love here, there's deep um, trust here. That's what, that's what they're, they're demonstrating to you and welcoming you into the family. So imagine this, right? Judas uses the very thing that we understand as the most intimate, welcoming barrier and performer of trust to say, I'm going to betray this man. I mean, the depths of his heart are wicked. Wicked when he could have picked anything. Now, there are countless prophecies about this, by the way. I know I, know I love showing you how uh, the, the perfect inspired word of God is just threaded, right, over the course of uh, about 1,500 years, over 40 different authors and multiple continents, how it all points to the same message with the same man, with the same plan, that being Jesus, that all the orbits, uh, that all the planets orbit around it. So here you see, again, you can go back to Psalm 41, written almost 1,000 years before this, where it's prophesied that one will come and betray the Son of Man. It'll actually be Jesus' voice foreshadowed that even my close friend who I trusted, who ate my bread, will lift his heel against me. Jesus actually quotes that verse in John 13. You, you have about 700 years before in Zechariah in this prophecy that says that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and you see that later. Right, just this meticulous perfection that is the word of God that hundreds of years before the incarnate son of God, the second member of the Trinity, enters human history, that God knew this whole plan would unfold exactly as it should. And here you see this all happening. And we see that Judas will do this, that he's actually paid 30 pieces of silver. Now, before we move on, I, I know in our hearts, right, some of us are going, man, well, I would never outright betray Jesus. I mean, and I'm not even a Christian. I don't even trust him as the son of God. I don't even believe he's my savior, but I would never betray him or deny him. Well, 
The truth is that whatever is preventing you from making him Lord and Savior is what you're choosing to use to betray him. That's the very thing that you're selling him out with. I mean, I mean, what is it? For some, it's, it's just straight money, right? Well, I don't want Jesus to be God of my life, Lord of my life, because then he's gonna like infringe on my accounts and my finances. Like, I don't want anyone telling me what to do with my money. Others of us are like, maybe it's ambition, maybe it's self-glory, maybe it's popularity, maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but there is something that is preventing you from loving him, pursuing him, making him God of your life, and that's the very thing that you're willing to sell him out for. So in reality, all of us, before we became Christians, those of us who are Christians in this room, were just like Judas, selling him out for something else that we loved more, that we wanted more than him. And so even those of us that love him now and walk with him now, what are those things you're tempted to betray him with and sell him with just like Judas? And we see this throughout the scriptures. And so back to the text, I love this. Jesus still shows his complete authority over this whole thing. I love it, we've been seeing that so much. And here I love this, as Judas hasn't even kissed him yet, Jesus is like, really? You're gonna betray me with a kiss? He's like halfway, you know, it's like, Oh, I don't know, maybe I should go for the side hug, right? He, 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 he's not ready for this, and Jesus consistently shows, hey, really, that's the way you're gonna betray me? That's the deepest sense of intimacy and love. I mean, you were my friend, you walk with me, you, were, you, you heard me teach, you heard me preach, you saw me do things, you were the one who, go, who went and helped the poor. I mean, really, this is how this whole thing is going to end, even though Jesus fully knew and fully understood that this is how this whole thing was going to end. And, And the disciples all knew what was gonna happen. They were up with Jesus in the upper room when he sent out Judas. They're all understanding it now. So they're going, hey, is this the time? Can we pull our swords out now? Remember last week we saw that he goes, hey, on this mission you can take your sword. Remember back when we sent the 72? No, you can't take your sword. On this mission you can because it's gonna get serious. You're gonna need defense. And Jesus says, no, put that away. This is the time. This is the hour. This is where the whole thing's supposed to roll out. And he says to them, this is the hour of darkness. The darkness that is in you is probably even greater than the darkness that's occurring. It's profound what we see here. And then, of course, Peter, classic Peter, just always anxious, always zealous, sometimes in a right way, sometimes in a foolish way, takes his sword out, cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear, and I love this. Jesus takes the ear, heals the man, almost as a continued demonstration of that he loves those who hate him. A consistent theme of Jesus that he makes enemies his friends. That's the good news of the gospel, right? We were once enemies of God and we were made friends of God. He shows still compassion as they're in the garden ready to arrest him. He could have just been like, yeah, you deserve that. Let your ear bleed. Let your head bleed. But he doesn't. He picks it up and puts it on the head of the servant and heals him. What compassion even in a moment of divine arrest. And I always say this. You know, we got to be a little more intellectually honest with ourselves, those of us who are skeptics or seekers and and put God on the dock or Jesus on the dock and say, um, man, well, I wouldn't act like him. How could he judge? How could he condemn? No, when would any of you treat your enemies like Jesus treated his enemies? And going to a cross to be slaughtered for sin that he never committed on their behalf so that they could be made right with his father. How many of you, as we've seen through the Gospels, would open up your home to the deepest of sinners, the enemies of God, to, with the hopes that they would be made right with God? If we're honest, none of us probably, in the ways that Jesus did. 
And so we gotta be a little bit more honest when we put Jesus on the dock and judge him for things that he does, saying, man, Jesus is the only one who is the quintessential example. We talked about this as we walk through Luke as to how we should walk and live, and he demonstrates it perfectly because we cannot. And he's gonna be our ultimate example and sacrifice for this. And so Jesus basically says, no more of this. Peter, I'm in control of this thing. It's supposed to happen now. Put your swords away. You'll need them later. Now, John records something that I, I've always loved when studying John. The same scene. It's amazing because the people come like, hey, who is this? And he's like, Jesus of Nazareth. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. But he uses the word I am, which is to ascribe the title of the eternal God. So he basically says, yes, I am not just Jesus of Nazareth. He says with weight, with authority, I'm the God who always was. I'm the God who always been. I was a part of the Trinitarian, one God, three persons before the foundation of the world, the one who helped out with creation, and the gravity of his statement is so profound that everybody falls over. Like all the, all the soldiers and, all, and Judas himself, they just start toppling over each other. It's like, man, we can't even handle it. So it's almost like you hear Jesus saying, hey, put your swords away. With just a word ascribing to my name and my character, I can throw this whole operation off. We don't need your sword. What power, right? That's why I always tell people, man, read the Gospels. That's, I mean, that's really how I became a Christian. I mean, seeing the life of Jesus, you gotta read it. You gotta see what he does. You can't make this up. The way that he interacted with people and responded and did things. And this is why Jesus then looks at the crowd and goes, why are you here with swords and clubs? I mean, don't you know you've had time and time again a chance to arrest me? You were in the temples when I was preaching and teaching and I kept withholding you. I kept telling you, no, it's not the time. You tried to throw me off a cliff in Luke 4. You tried to do this somewhere else and I kept telling you, it's not the time, it's not the time. Okay, now it's the time. Now you can come arrest me. You don't need swords and clubs. Why'd you come out with weapons? You think you were coming after a robber? I mean, there's nothing you can even accuse me of. Yet we see that it was all in the plan of God. And we're gonna circle back in a moment, but let's look at Peter. Verse 54, we're gonna see now another man and what happens with him. Verse 54, then they seized him, they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then there was a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. But he denied it saying, woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, yeah, you're also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. So Jesus is led away, tied up to the high priest's house because they need to come up with some type of accusation against Jesus. Understand, legal trials only happen in daylight. So it's nighttime, they gotta decide, okay, what's the charge we can bring against Jesus before we give him that legal trial? It's middle of the night, it's late. Peter, I believe out of love for Jesus, devotion to Jesus, follows him. He's confused at what's happening, yet some things are becoming clear. 
We learn that John knows somebody who lets them in the courtyard. It's Annas and Caiaphas' house, likely. They were rich because remember we saw when he overthrew the temple, uh, the extortion of the poor that the high priests were gaining all the income from, so they lived very wealthy. So there's this courtyard amidst probably a beautiful property, and people are making a fire because it's late, it's probably cold, they're sitting by it to get warm, and so Peter decides, I'm just gonna sit here and kind of figure out and look and see what's happening. And as he's sitting in this courtyard, he's so overconfident, he's so prideful. We saw this last week. I mean, this man here believes that he will never do what, P- what Jesus said he would do. Remember, he's, it's almost like he's here to prove that he won't do what Jesus said he would do. Remember last week Jesus said, hey, you're gonna deny me three times. And it's my prayers are gonna prevail over you. They're gonna actually sustain you and keep you from destruction. You're gonna turn and then you're gonna strengthen your other, other brothers and say, look how forgiving God is, how gracious God is, how kind God is. And, and before that though, it's almost like he's sitting here going, okay, I just need to make sure that I, I prove that I'm not like that. Even though you're omniscient, Jesus, even though you know everything, even though you made the universe, I think I know what I will do and not do. And here he is sitting, he is prideful, he's overconfident. And I bet he's a bit panicked, too. I bet his heart is racing. I bet he's trying to discern all that's going on. And a young servant girl approaches him. Understand, this is why I love the scriptures. If you're gonna write stuff that's made up to prove a point, you're not gonna make yourself look like a moron. Okay, so listen, young servant girls had zero power, zero authority. It's a young servant girl who comes and basically says, hey, I think I know who you are. There should be no reason for Jesus to fear what she says to him. Yet Peter says, in a terrified, panicked you know, moment, I-, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know that guy. She looks in the glow of the fire and sees his face that resembles him. She says, no, I think you were with Jesus, that guy who just came in here who's tied up in the high priest's house right now. And he says, no, I, I don't know who he is. Mark tells us he leaves, and now he's headed towards the gate. There's probably some emotion working up. Maybe, maybe he's thinking, oh my goodness, is all that's happening now what Jesus said would happen? We don't really know. And as he is leaving towards the gate, another comes up and says, hey, yeah, you're the one who was with Jesus. You're the one who was with all of his followers. And again, he's like, no, I, I'm not them. I'm not one of his, flat out denial, flat out betrayal. Others start jumping in. We see an hour later, a third is like, hey, you got an Galilean accent just like Jesus. Why would a Galilean be in the courtyard? You've gotta be one who is with Jesus. And now it's rising so much. Matthew says he starts pronouncing curses over himself. And he goes, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I really, I just don't, I don't know him. I wasn't with him. I, I, I'm not one of whoever you think I am. And you can just see Peter in his moment of overconfidence and in his deep welled pride do what he thought he would never do in a moment of weakness. And he does the very thing that Jesus said he would do. And immediately he starts weeping bitterly. Peter does the very thing he thought he would never do the very thing that Jesus asked him to guard his heart from. Now, before we move on, uh, maybe some of us scoff at Peter here, right? You're like, you call him a coward. I couldn't believe he could do that. I mean, he's with Jesus, he's seen it all. I mean, Jesus even told him that he would do this. How how could he be such a moron not to know that was gonna happen? Yet, we've all made promises we haven't kept. 
We've all said we would never do things that we've done. Right, I mean, those of us who are married, right, we got before God at the altar and said, I will love you as Christ loves his church. Wives said, I will love you and submit to you as Jesus does to his father. And what happens? How are you doing this week? 10 for 10? Right, I mean, you got friends, right? I'll never betray you. I'll never say something against you. I'll love you. I'll be there for you. And how are you doing as you look back over the course of your life? You, you 10 for 10? I mean, when you became a Christian, right? I mean, fundamentally, you said, I will die to myself. I will live for Christ. I love him. I will serve him. I will submit to him. And how are you doing with that over this past week? You 10 for 10? See, we've all failed miserably. We have all made promises we have not kept, and that is the greatest news about what we have in Christ, that as we stumble about in our way, this thing called the Christian life, the Christian walk, it is a constant relying on and leaning into and going back to the perfectly obedient Jesus who never fails, who never breaks promises, who never breaks vows, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he is for us the perfect substitute, the perfect God, the perfect friend, the perfect Lord, so we have him despite all the moments that we stumble about in our sin. Now, I mean, maybe for you it was last year. Maybe you remember a time it was last month, last week, yesterday. Some of you guys are going, man, I'm so glad I'm not like any of them. Yeah, wait till tomorrow, right? So it doesn't matter. I mean, your day's coming where you're gonna fail and fall miserably and the only thing that will uphold you and keep you in the mark of maturity of a Christian in running to Jesus when they fall is Jesus, Like, that's all that you have. Like, in your darkest moments, darkest days, where you feel weak, where you are, don't feel like wanting him, loving him, it is Jesus alone through the power of his gospel that not just at one time raised you back to life in your deadness of sin. It said, no, you're gonna be able to walk now. You now have the Holy Spirit of God that will enable you to persevere, to endure, to keep turning back to Jesus as you stumble about along the way. So those of us that love him and have him, that's the greatest news we've ever heard or could be told. Because we know us, right? If there's any honesty in your heart, you know you. You know left to your own the remainder of your life, however long that is, that you're doomed for failure apart from his gracious work, right? And that is the good news that we have. And so we're gonna see That happened here with Peter, probably one of the most compelling verses in Luke, verse 60. And immediately, while he was still speaking, while Peter's still denying Jesus, ranting, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Now, we know from other gospels that during the time that Peter was outside, that he was beaten some. So he was probably bloodied. He was probably swollen. Maybe he's going from the the side of Annas to Caiaphas' side, right, as they're kind of figuring out how to bring accusations against Jesus. All we know is at some point, Jesus, in the providence of God, schedules himself to walk outside as as Peter's heading to the gate, and he gets to catch eyes with Jesus, who's bloodied and beaten and swollen. And Jesus looks at him, not in anger, but deep sorrow. Can you imagine? Can you imagine 
after you've done this thing, think about the darkest place you've ever gone. Shame, despair, and if we could see his literal face, he walks into your house and looks at you. Because fundamentally, right, to sin, we know is not just breaking God's law, it's breaking God's heart. So he looks at him, and, and, and I love this. Peter, I love, you, one of the things I love most about this is not just that he weeps uncontrollably, bitterly, but in this text, it only takes seconds for him to grieve over his sin to the Lord. Like, like he's grieved right away as he sees it. Judas, we'll see later, feels remorse. I don't believe it's godly remorse, but much later. Here, it is within minutes And let me say this, I wonder how long does it take you to grieve over your sin towards his name? Because here's the truth, the longer you play with sin and treat it like a pet, try to manage it, not believing it's a lion that's gonna kill you, the longer you do that, the more numb your soul gets to that particular thing and the longer it takes you to ever even feel godly sorrow that leads you to repentance, that leads you to life. So we can't play around with this thing because the longer you stay in that place, the more numb you get and your soul just gets calloused and you just keep walking and forgetting and not acknowledging the very thing that you're doing to where you get to a place that says, how did I get here? Yet with Peter, he's sensitive to his sin before the Lord, and he weeps bitterly, urgently, right away. So here's what I want to do. I just want to lay some closing thoughts before us in regards to Judas and Peter that might challenge us. Um, We know, let's do Judas first. Um, We know according to Matthew 27 and Acts 1 that this ultimately, his his sin, the, the betrayal against the God of the universe, leads him to ruin, not repentance. He goes out in a field and he hangs himself. He doesn't run to Jesus, he runs to a tree. And he makes a selfish act and he just feels bad for what he did. And this is John 17 being fulfilled. He will ultimately be doomed by his destruction. And listen, this is what happens when we walk in sin apart from Jesus Christ. It ultimately leads you to destruction, yes, physically, but ultimately eternally. When all the while you can turn to Jesus in your sin. I mean, some of us, man, we are living life in deep despair, deep brokenness, and you don't turn to Jesus for forgiveness of sin, for new life. You turn to the bottle, you turn to relationships, you turn to money, you turn to accolades, you turn to your job, you turn to whatever it is outside of Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that will resolve and revive your soul. Everything else numbs your soul to the sin that enslaves you, to where you find yourself so deeply broken that at times it leads to the uttermost despair. So what are we seeing here? Well, number one, like Judas, you just simply listening to sermons doesn't mean you're a Christian. I mean, Judas had the best preacher in the world, right? Jesus. He sat under sermons week in and week out. But, but mere listening doesn't equal believing, right? Why James will say, hey, be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. You need to put into practice what you already know. Because I feel like there's this weird thing that happens, especially like around here in, in evangelical circles and in this, the church in America. We think that the more knowledge we grow in, the more dead people we can quote, the more things that we can say and memorize, somehow spiritual maturity is equal to what you know in your head. 
So man, you can go your whole life just walking in this room, just filling yourself up with sermons and memorizing. You go to community group and all these things, but if you don't actually walk in and lay before your heart the gauntlet of truth that can expose you and able to walk in newness of life, it does not matter how much truth you hear. It doesn't matter how many sermons you hear. It doesn't matter if you sit under the best preacher in the best church in the best nation. It does not matter if you don't walk in what you are hearing. Mere listening does nothing. You need transformation. That's why we plead with God at 9 a.m. In, in the room on corporate prayer in our homes as elders, as people here. Before we start the service, God, would you bring about transformation? We don't need just a bunch more information in our heads. We need something divine, something profound, something outside of us that only you can enact that we can't do. And so that's why we plead with God for that so that you, as you hear the truth of God, would be transformed by the truth of God and walk in newness of life. But be careful that you're not like Judas because he sat with him for three years. He heard the best sermon, saw the best healings. It did nothing. That alone did not change his heart. That alone did not make him new. My question to you is, are you walking in what you already know? Because I find this weird thing when I meet with people, it's like, teach me something new. Give me some new big theology, some brand new thing I haven't heard before. And I'm going, you know enough right now to damn you or save you. Like, like you've been given enough truth right now where you could walk in the truth you've heard the rest of your life and not be to the full. In the sense of there's always more to be heard. The riches of this word are inexhaustible. They're unattainable. I mean, in glory, we're going to be discovering and learning the truths about the glory of God for eternity, for eons. So we're not going to satisfy that now. So some of us, you just need to simply go, man, I've been taught that Jesus died for sin, that, that life is real, that hell is real, that torment is real, that eternity is long, that I have a response that is my responsibility, that I am to decide whether Jesus is my Lord, whether he is my Savior, that I've been encouraged to watch out for sin that will enslave and encourage how to live according to the truths of God. I've learned that my life is about him and not about me. I mean, we've got enough, trust me, brothers and sisters, enough to know what we can walk in right now. And we sit and go, no, 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 I want something else. Tickle my ears. It's a dangerous place to be. That's why I love it. I had someone last year around Easter, they said, man, I've been following your sermons online and all you talk about is sin and Jesus. I'm like, good, you got it. That's great. I'm glad you're getting it. Yeah, but it's just like, I go, there's nothing else to talk about. <laughs> because this whole book points to your sin in Jesus. In all the beautiful ways that it does. In all the different facets and sides to it. So may we never grow bored of it. Number two, um, like Judas, um, you just being around Christian people doesn't make you a Christian. I mean, think about it, man. He was around the twelve. Man, he had people that actually ended up writing parts of the New Testament scriptures. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're in a community group. It doesn't matter even if, if you come here. It doesn't matter if you, if you were raised in a Christian home. It doesn't matter if you witness God's work all the time. Listen, those are good, beautiful, important things. We encourage people, get community, link arms. We're not saved just to God, but to a people. We don't want to live in isolation. We want to thrive with other brothers and sisters. I'm not saying we don't do that, but I'm saying if that is what you think makes you new, you're missing it all. It's not that that makes you have a regenerated heart. It's a regenerated heart that enables you to want the other things. I always say, Jesus is after your heart, not just your hands. Like, he wants to transform you. He doesn't just want you to be nice. 
He doesn't just want you to have nice new habits. He wants all that you are. So do you love Jesus? Not do you know Jesus. Do you love Jesus? That was Judas. Oh, he knew who Jesus was. He could probably break down for you a better Christology than you could. Yet, there was no regeneration in his heart. There was no change. There was no salvation for him. So some of us should not be asking, does my spouse love Jesus? Does my friend love Jesus? Does my church love Jesus? You should be asking, do I? Do I love him? Do I want him? Number three, like Judas, um, us just doing stuff for Jesus doesn't make us a Christian. And this is huge. I mean, if you're not careful, we will try to actually serve and do as a means to atone for our sin. Right? I mean, we will, we will try to just do all of these things that make us, in some way, we think closer to God, that righteousness will somehow be attained in a greater way. And here we learn that you cannot do it that way. Christianity is not all about talking about what we do, but what Jesus Christ has done. That is the consistent theme of what it means to be a Christian. We proclaim that he is good, he is awesome, we are not, and he has saved us, and we did not save ourselves. So we wanna serve, we wanna aggressively build up the body of Christ. He's given different members for different parts to do different acts of service. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things, I'm saying those things alone are not the mask you can wear to close off and protect your wicked heart. That you need something else. Now just to be clear, I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I've never said that, I never will say that. The Bible's explicitly clear that when Jesus saves you, he does not lose those who he saves. He seals you with his Holy Spirit. I'm not saying you can lose it, I am saying you can fake it. Like, absolutely. I mean, you can, you can, anyone can fake their salvation. I mean, that's why we get into these weird texts. I meet with people all the time who give me an example of someone they saw who looked a certain way. Now they're not a certain way, and their answer is not according to the Bible. Their answer is according to experience, and they go, well, they must have lost their salvation. No, there's only two options according to the Bible. Either they never were to begin with, or they are struggling, and Jesus has them by the coattail, and eventually he's going to rip them into the gates of glory by him upholding them and not them upholding themselves. But you only have those two options. Like you don't have the option of Jesus saved them and they weaseled their way out of his sovereign grip. You cannot do that. And that is great news for the Christian. But it's also a great urgent reminder and caution to the one who might just be faking it. And so you love being around the things of God. You love experiencing the works of God. Yet you yourself have never trusted in the finished work of Jesus. And you need to do that. We love you enough to say we want you to do that. We want you to become his. We want him to become yours. We want you to walk in fullness of life. Now let's look at Peter. I want you to remember something Jesus told Peter back in verse 32. We looked at this last week. He said this. It'll be on the screen. Peter, my prayers are going to sustain you, and when you turned again, go and strengthen your brothers. This is before Peter even falls. We know that Peter will turn, he will repent, and he'll go and strengthen his brothers going, this is how good God is, this is how I'm restored, this is how he strengthened me. I always say a mark of Christian maturity is when you stumble and fall, you run towards Jesus, not away from Jesus. Ultimately, his grip keeps you running back to him in his grace. So Peter will fail Jesus, but Jesus will not fail Peter. 
No, he will not. Jesus does not fill any of his sheep. John 10, no, I know all my sheep. They're all in my hand and no one can snatch them out of it. But he, he, he has all of that. So he says to him, hey, Peter, you're gonna turn after you do this terrible denial of me. After you do something you thought you could never do in your pride, guess what? I'm gonna rip you back to myself. You're gonna turn from that. You're gonna go tell all your brothers, hey, this is how good the grace of God is. This is how forgiving Jesus is. This is what he has done to restore me. And I love this because if you go to the end of John's gospel, there's this amazing scene. They're on the shore. What does Jesus do? He goes, hey, Peter, do you love me? And a lot of scholars believe because he asked him three times. That's to signify the three denials. And so he wants to hear him say it three times. And, and you've got all this happening. And eventually, what's he doing? He's just asking, hey, are you gonna turn from your heart back at the bonfire that grew prideful, grew overconfident, and are you gonna turn back to me and love me? Because when you sin, you don't just break God's law, you break God's heart. And I wanna make sure you're grieved over your love for me, not just that you've made a wreck of your conscience. I wanna make sure it's because you've dirtied your soul and belittled the name of the triune God. Because that's what repentance is, right? Repentance is just two words, mind and heart, to turn away from and turn to. So to repent, we've been learning this throughout Luke, it's to turn from sin and turn towards Jesus Christ. That's what it means to repent. And I love it. Luke writes a second volume, right, called Acts. And Peter goes on, and what does he do? He loves Jesus, he preaches for Jesus, gives the first sermon at Pentecost, 3,000 become Christians, preaches another one, 5,000. He helps start the church. He ends up writing two letters in the New Testament that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing now, if you go read First and Second Peter, isn't it awesome? His, all those letters are about persevering and enduring through hope, through temptation. So you've got Peter here laying before you going, hey, I've walked this, yet I've turned to Christ, haven't walked away from him, so here's things you can know and learn based upon personal experience. And God is now letting me write this to you to encourage you that the fiery trials you experience, that you will be upheld, that these are the things that produce hope in your heart. These are the things that protect you from your temptations. Peter's heart was not perfection, but it was repentance. He was not a perfect man, but he was a changed man. We've got to make sure that's clear. I mean, to be a Christian doesn't mean you're perfect. Otherwise, no one would be in heaven. That's why Jesus is our perfection for us. But it does mean you live a life that is repentant. And you'll actually see later, history will record at the end of Peter's life, he has a chance to deny Jesus again. And he doesn't. It says, I'm not even worthy to be crucified as Jesus, so hang me upside down. Amazing. He has another chance to deny him later, and he stands firm to the point of death on a cross upside down. See, Satan wants your sin to lead to ruin like Judas, and God wants your sin to lead to repentance like Jesus and like Peter. He's for you. And so I wonder, um, we see Peter's life, others of us, and you sit in this room and you are grieving over deep shame, deep brokenness. You're thinking you're outside the grace of God. I want you to know the most loving way I can tell you that is as God mocking as the guy who thinks he's too good for the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Because both say, whether deep shame or deep self-righteousness, I resolve for both of you. I take your shame, I take your ill pride, I take all of that and I kill it in the palm of my son's hand and in his death your sin dies too. That he put the shame that you live in upon his shoulders to free you from your shame and brokenness. That he was shamed so you don't have to live in shame. That as you fail, as you stumble and fall, he doesn't want you to stay in that place. He wants you to get up and run to Jesus in repentance, turning from that sin and continuing to run to the risen son of of Jesus Christ. I I want you to just think about a time. Because this is Peter who failed miserably and then is used by the grace of God for the glory of God. I mean, think about that time where you went farther than you'd ever go, darker than you ever thought, And do you see the glory of Jesus Christ on the cross, say his cross and his risen son, and you're all mine. Like you're all mine. In that space, you're all mine. Not when you were ready. Not when your life looked better than yesterday. Man, in the darkest day that you've ever encountered, that you will ever clock, he said, that's when my death counts for you. God loves to grab people on the farthest fringes and make them some of his brightest lights for the kingdom of God. Just read the Bible. Otherwise, he wouldn't use anybody. I mean, somebody like, man, my family tree's jacked up. Look at Jesus' family tree. Prostitutes, rapists, murderers, adulterers. Well, I got a ton of baggage. Yeah, Jesus did too, but he redeems our whole family line to make a new family that we live in that is perfect because of the person and work of himself. So let me just say this in closing. Whether you identify with Judas or whether you identify with Peter, repentance is not minimizing your sin. It's not ignoring your sin. It's not defending your sin. It's not justifying your sin. Repentance is acknowledging, like David in Psalm 51, I've I've sinned against God first and predominantly. Yes, our sin affects others, no doubt, but first and foremost, my sin is against a God who dwells in infinite perfections, and I deserve last week the wrath of God to be poured out on me for my belittlement of his name, yet he took the cup, drank it for me in full, went to that cross, took all that I owed God that I could never repay for my sin, and said, I will do it for you, and I will make you one with me that we now live as Christ. That when he rose, he proved it to you. That every time you wonder if his love is sustainable, you look at his cross, you can never escape it. He gave you the one thing to hang your hat on and the truth on. And I just want to say, this turning from and turning to Jesus, like Peter, like So many of us, I just feel like we believe repentance is just continuing to avoid our sin and running from it and dismissing it. But you're not running to Jesus. Like you have to have both. Otherwise, all you're gonna have is an exhausting life where you try to play this weird game where you just try to play, like you know that um, in, in the circus where you can hit those little gophers that pop up? That's all you do. It's exhausting. You're just trying to hit everyone. As soon as you hit them all, you think you're good, and then one pops up. Like, you're just mowing weeds if you play that game. Like, you have to lean into Jesus, pursuing him through preaching, prayer, word, community. You are pushing into him to where that starts breaking the sins in your life, not you just kind of avoiding and running around them. You're turning and going headlong into him. Like, as you do that, then life starts to bubble up. Then fullness of life is found. The joy in Christ is found. You experience his power. You experience the Holy Spirit's work in your life. 
It's not about you just running away from stuff. It's you running to Jesus Christ. I mean, some of you are exhausted because you think repentance is just trying to be good, trying to be moral, trying to avoid things, just trying to be more a part of something. That's not it at all. You have got to turn and bow your knee to Jesus and say, uh, he's God, he's Savior, I'm not. I'm an idolater. I'm a belittlement of his name. I have not done anything right. I want to be my own God. I want to be better than him. I want to make my own decisions. I want to run my life, not as he wants me to run my life. I want to wire my life, not as he wants to wire my life. And if you do that with honesty, integrity, honesty, authenticity, and say, God, I'm giving you all that. I can't pay my debt. I can't even do it through humanism, pantheism, secularism, anything. And you trust in his finished work, then that's what keeps you growing in grace. Repentance is not just so you can become a Christian in a moment. It's so you can keep growing in the grace of God. I mean, I tell people all the time, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, repent and believe. Like that's the theme of scripture. Martin Luther had it right when he said that. So what do we do each Sunday that we walk in? We repent of sin and we turn to Jesus Christ. Some of us for salvation and some of us for our continued sanctification. But hear me, friend. If you live your life just constantly trying to absolve your sin outside of him and not turning to him and not loving him and pursuing him and making much of him and finding your joy in him, you will lead an exhausting road just like Judas that leads to despair where you just feel bad and ultimately die a tragic death. That's the only option. I'm not saying it might look nice on the outside and culture, but eventually, and you see this, Hollywood stars, look at it. They try to do it themselves and just the devastation, utter heartbreak is so horrific. So let's not try to do it ourselves today, would we not? Let's enjoy what we have in Christ. Let's ask him for help to repent this morning. I wanna give you a moment before we observe the Lord's Supper and enjoy Jesus that we can have his body and his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sin. Remember, if you're in this room and, and maybe you've grown up with just religion, understand the difference is religion teaches that you're saved by your fruit. So let me just be more moral and hear more commands and try to obey and God will judge me on a curve. Repentance is you're judged by the fruit and work of Jesus Christ. That you're saved by his life, death, and resurrection. So there might be some of you this morning who you do not have relationship with Jesus. You have heard this. It makes sense to you. God has opened your eyes and ears. He's giving you understanding. You can turn to Jesus this morning in repentance and say, I want to leave my sin. I want to turn to Christ. And I want to keep turning to Jesus for help. I need to be saved. I need to be made new. And others of you, you're a blood-bought citizen of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, there is sin in your life, residual effects of the fall that you are not repenting of, that you need to repent from and turn from and turn to Jesus. Would you do that this morning? Would you do it gladly? Because he stands reminding you I paid it in full.
Father, forgive us for our hearts that want to do it on our own. God, forgive us for repenting in ways that are not repenting. God, would you help us this week to walk in the joy of turning to Jesus Christ? God, might you save some this morning. Might they repent and believe that, God, we long to confess our sins to you, not because we're afraid of you, but because we find forgiveness in you. What a beautiful truth. And God, might we not be like Judas, whose sin led him to ruin, but we might be like Peter, whose sin led him to repentance. God, help us. And as we sing and declare your goodness, might it be with joy from our hearts because of who you are and what you've done in us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.